by the Human Resource Executive Magazine's HR Technology Conference and Exposition, held October 1st to 4th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Join me and thousands of your colleagues at the world's largest exhibition of HR technology. Act now using the code HREX and you can receive a $300 discount on your ticket. Thanks. We'll see you there. And by the way, don't miss the Women in Technology segment. Good morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumzer. Hi, Stacey. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Are you guys uh, enjoying finally not being in the news this week for the uh, the weather and, and we're on the East Coast and not in the news again? <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll catch up with you right after the hurricane season comes. The real fire season here, and so and so we're we're get, we'd like like the entire town yesterday shut down to have um, uh, evacuation drills and safety checks and make sure that everybody's cell phones get the message when the fire is coming. So. So, so we're just a little bit behind you in the weather now. Just a little bit behind, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying myself right now. So far, nothing is hitting. I'm, as most people know, I'm, I'm located in the Raleigh Durham area, which is about three hours away from the coast. So we are. It, it's, it's the thing about hurricanes is it's like watching a very slow moving train come towards you, right? And there's nothing you can really do other than just making sure all your stuff's put away in the yard and your windows are all covered up and stuff. But we and the and the sky just keeps getting more and more sort of eerily green, yellowish, you know, as you're watching waiting for the hurricane to come. So that's what I'm doing right now. But so it's a good way to spend the time this morning to have a conversation and not think about a hurricane coming. <laughs> So let's see if we can if we can go quickly through the list of things we want to cover and then get to the gem. Yeah, we have a, it's it's an eclectic I guess a mix of of conversations going on this morning. Um we have um a couple of appointments, new positions going on at organizations. Um Unit 4, which is now headed up by Mike Getling is uh snatching a lot of I would call SAP, you know, um uh past and present in some cases, uh, uh, talent. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit about some of the new uh, positions there, the new um, head of North America, as well as the new human capital management strategy role. Um, We also have Udacity coming up with a new chief executive officer for those who follow the learning space. This is actually kind of interesting news because it's not in the learning space that this person came from. Um, Probably the biggest news we've got going on right now this week is Culture Amp raising $82 million. Um, and a round E funding, which raises their total um, sort of money fund or total funding they've received in the last couple of years to $158 million. We can talk a little bit about what that is and what it means. Um, time clock, there's two organizations who got investments but did not give us amounts from private equity firms. One is Time Clock Plus. Um, which is an organization I just got a chance to know a little bit more about um, earlier this year. 60,000 organizations use their workforce management application, as well as HireVue, which you know very well. They're receiving growth investment from their new majority investor, Carlisle Group. 
Um, we also have um, a couple of new seed funding. Stoke raising $4.5 million in seed funding to bring open talent um, on on-demand talent to the market freelance. And then um, we have some interesting, I think, updates on um, what's going on in applications. We'll probably get a lot of this at the HR Tech Conference in October. Um, but uh, Paychex is rolling out five new features this quarter, which I think are worth mentioning, and Skillsoft. Percipio um, uh, added a new custom content capability, which I think is worth mentioning um, in their focus um, of things, kind of makes them a little differentiated from some of the other organizations that offer content. Um, and then I think the one that we really wanted to maybe start the conversation off with is what we didn't get to talk about last week, which was an interesting article in uh, Fast Company that I had the opportunity uh, to come across. And then I went out and reached out to, the, to writer Jessica Richmond about the article who's running an organization called the Visible Collective Foundation or the Visible Collective. And um, the article is about the inclusive workplace still making fat people feel invisible. And I use the fat word. It's a very uncomfortable word for me, as you might know, for those who maybe have never seen me. I have a little bit of extra poundage on. But this was a fascinating article um, and, and an interesting conversation. And so we were thinking that we'd start there because we didn't get to talk about it last week. Um, you think this is a bigger topic maybe than than just sort of diversity and inclusion as it relates to sort of who should and should not be inside the diversity and inclusion bubble. That's where my conversation started with this. Is weight a factor that should be included in the diversity and inclusion conversation at all? What do, what do you think, John? Well, well so, so, so I come from a very German family and, and very large German family. My dad had uh, 10 brothers and sisters, six, six sisters. Five of the six sisters were extremely heavy. And so, and so in, in my world, um, uh, fat people are kind of normal, right? Um, and um, it's, a, it's, it's something you can, you can see it in pictures from generations now. That it, that it is a, an ethnic trait. It was a German family, a particular a particular chunk of German stock, and uh, they're they're beefy. They're beefy. Um, what I know is that I live in a world where um, anorexic ideals of beauty are are highly prevalent, and I watched my own daughters. Um, struggle terribly with body image problems because they're also big people. They're, they're, they're my size more or less. Um, and I am, you know, six, one, six, two, 270 pounds. I don't, I don't really think of myself as fat, but, but I certainly am big, <laughs> you, you know, and, um, and it's, it's a very strange thing. It's also, it's also, I think, it's particularly interesting to look at gender differences here. Um, people of my height are generally assumed to have been football players, right? And so there's the there's <laughs> yeah. the football player exception to fat. Um, uh, but but it's it's you know you don't hear people use this word, uh, and 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 I, I think it's I think it's an important thing to investigate. And I know that I. Um, have a I have a bias here and 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 I have to think hard to not discount what I'm hearing from somebody who I've I've drawn some conclusion about their moral 
capacities because they have extra pounds. Right? It's it it requires work, and I'm used to people like this. If I were a a a, a willowy um, offspring of long distance runners, um, it might be harder for me to see clearly on this topic. It, it's an it's a topic that you know obviously I've struggled with my entire life. My and very similarly, you know, my family is a mixture of sort of uh, German and Eastern European, and that is by no means saying that it is just an ethnic conversation. It is also a healthcare and a wellness conversation that goes along with it. But you know, I, we have this this discussion. I, I go home to my hometown of Mansfield, Ohio, and a lot more people. I feel like I fit in. This is this is the the culture I'm from. The people that I that I know and and love and grew up with. Um, when I go to most conferences or events, or I go out to California or the East Coast, um, generally in an event, I am especially on the speaking circuit or on the in the in the places where you would have sort of more visibility. Right? Um, it is very unlikely to find people who are considered fat overweight, any determinant like that. The conversation I had with Jessica Richmond, which was really quite fascinating, is you know, she looks at this from, from from a very different perspective probably from most of us. Most of us who are dealing with it or most of us, I think, who are, are looking at it from the outside in are looking at it from a perspective of emotions and um, you know how you feel, and and what is it? What does it you know uh, cost you in both you know your ability to sort of get your message out there or not get your message out there? But she looks at it and it's sort of the same way we look at other diversity and inclusion conversations, right? She, you know, her perspective is that you know to your point, if an organization or someone is viewing someone who uh, is overweight as not being good enough, as not being able to sort of carry their own. Um, in the amount of activity or work that they need to to handle, um, that's talking about 71% of the U.S. population. 71% of the U.S. population is over the standard BMI number, which I didn't realize that. Um, 30% of the world are labeled obese and overweight. Um, she says that on average we're seeing that not only – so if you're a woman and you're overweight, right, fat professional women will likely be paid less than women who are considered traditionally thin – um, and she's, they figured the number would be somewhere um, in the range of nine dollars to $19,000 less per year, almost $22,000 annually for, you know, less for women who are considered basically obese or overweight. And she's also looking at this in the t- context, which I thought was really interesting, of the whole wellness movement that we've had inside organizations. M- when you talk about wellness applications, for the most part right now, a lot of wellness programs that organizations are running have a, a factor to do with um, improving organizational environments so people have to walk more, so there's more stairs. Um, wellness programs are looking at your weight and they're looking at what you eat. They're not always looking at mental health issues. They're not always looking at genetic factors. They're not always looking at historical factors. They don't take into consideration any of the other factors that could be causing, in some cases, weight issues in many cases other than just activity, which oftentimes is not the primary indicator when it comes to people who have genetically are, are more disposed to being overweight. So this is a, It's a topic that I think... We haven't put a lot of science behind, but we do have a lot of emotion around, right? Well, well. So let me let me just double down on this. I read a great article in the New Republic, um, and you can find a link to it if you go look at my Twitter feed at John Sumpter. Um, 
And it's called the Scourge of Wellness Programs. Um, And basically what it says is wellness programs discriminate against the disabled. Um, I know know you know the story of... um, the conference I went to when I was I was in a wheelchair for a little bit. I went to this yeah. conference in a wheelchair, and um, anybody who could um, participate in the walking challenge that day was given a Fitbit. And there was all sorts of falderall about um, wellness at the conference, and it was all about walking, and I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's the kind of th- that's a kind of insensitive thing that you get, and then it turns out that what's interesting about wellness isn't employees getting well. What's interesting about wellness is you can inst- institute surveillance that allows you to save money, right? And so, <laughs> so, so wellness is a cost reduction initiative. It's not a wellness initiative, and yeah. and so you get this sort of double speak about. What we're what we're what we're calling it, and then what we're actually doing, that dances right around this great big elephant in the room, so to speak. Uh, um, that that is isn't isn't it sixty percent of the population is clinically obese? Isn't isn't that the number? Um, yeah, I, I know the numbers that 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 Jessica has on hers is seventy one percent of U.S. and thirty percent of the worldwide. So I guess maybe if you average that out, it's probably somewhere in that sixty percent range that you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 and and as I sit here and think about it, I can't. I can only point to one out of out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and C level managers I've met over the years. I can only think of one who qualified as um, sort of fat, I mean, really fat, um, and he was brilliant. Um, but he was a he, and he got away with it because he was a he, and, and there there is no evidence that, that bearing much additional weight is anything but penalizing in forward movement and careers in our culture. And and I think you know, and it's it's an honest discussion to have. I mean, one of the reasons I have never on, brought it up a lot is I I think personally, even I have have had the perspective that it, it is something that generally you should be able to change. Even for my own personal challenges, I that is how I feel. And I think there's there's a lot of conversation that Jessica and I had about sort of our own personal view of ourselves, right? Um, you know, when I when I think about other diversity and inclusion issues like skin color, like disabilities, like you know, um, gender and sexual orientation, those are things that you can't change without sort of some, some you know, uh, discussion on your part about what you want to, you know, sort of, uh, it, it's just things you can't change. So the weight conversation for me, you know, is seems to be a very, um, it's, it's fraught with all kinds of, of both emotional and challenging, you know, issues as to, how much of it is part of who you are, your genetics and your makeup, even though I know, you know, to your same conversation we had earlier, that when I was younger, I can remember family photos, particularly of my great-grandmother in 1932, who was a spitting image of me. I mean, we, we, we could have been sisters standing next to each other, right? Same weight, same height. Um, at the height of, you know, what was considered the Great Depression, and her family was dealing with the Great Depression as much as anybody else. It is definitely part of the makeup of who our DNA is, but it's also something that you know we have to work on from a health issue. We have to work on from a from a a, um, a social perspective. It's it's something that I think 
is is about what you're taught as well as what your genetics can do, and all those things come into factor with it, right? So, so this is it's classic discrimination, right? It's a moral judgment wrapped in a bucket of shame, um, and that's how, that's how all of the justification for treating people as less than um, evolves, right? It's 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 oh, well, of course you're inferior because you can't do X or because you are Y. And, and this idea that, that weight constitutes a moral failing that is, that it's okay to judge that runs deep in the culture, but it, it, it isn't true. And it isn't true that weight is inherently fixable, right? It's a, it's a function of, of, a, a whole bunch of factors from biology to social structure um, that that uh, may not be as changeable as they sound. Yeah. Right? If well, it was easy, if it was easy to change, there wouldn't be a diet industry, right? <laughs> exactly. I would, I would say, if it was easy to change, there would be a huge amount of money that would be lost in the industry and the market, right, for dieting, <laughs> right. without a doubt. Yeah, we would have a whole right. collapse in some cases of the infrastructure here in the United States around it. Um, but yeah, no, you are correct, and 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 it's very difficult for me to talk about because it's such a personal issue. But I, but like I said, Jessica really, really, um, the conversation with her, reading her article, sort of gave me. I think not just a conversation about sort of my own personal struggles that I could sort of, you know, hold on to, but also the science, the data behind it, because that's what drives me. I, I really want to look at science and data behind things that I'm interested in. That's that's the type of stuff I gravitate towards. And that's where she went with this conversation. Um, and it was much more about the fact that we are missing out as a community, as a, you know, business industry, as, you know, a cultural entity, because we are discounting the voices from basically more than half, sometimes more than 70% of the population because we don't feel like um, their voice is as important, right? And that's the case with almost any of the, the diversity and inclusion conversations that we have, right? Yeah, so I want to drag you back to something. One of the questions you asked in the beginning of this is, is should being fat be a diversity and inclusion question because it involves um, – uh, something that you can change, and the other, <clears throat> the other things don't inherently involve something that you can change. And and I'm going to say that that the diversity and inclusion stuff is all is not about immutable characteristics. It's about um, bringing meritocracy back into the conversation and making it not okay um, that that you judge my work badly because there's something about me that you don't like right that's what diversity and inclusion is about is is overcoming the fact that there's something about you that i don't like and it could be your your skin tone it could be your sexual preference it could be the way that polio affected your limbs it could be the the fact that you need some sort of breathing assistance to work it could be the crazy feeling I have when I see you in a wheelchair. It could be all the things, but they boil down to I have some sort of a visceral response to you and I don't like you. And I allow my judgment about your work and your value in the organization to be shaped by the fact that I don't like you. That's the problem. It's not 
it's not it doesn't have anything to do with immutable characteristics really it has to do with allowing judgment about irrelevant factors to shape business decision making uh and and those you know the the irrelevant factors the the, the fact that that sort of we should not take them into consideration as part of sort of any decisions we're making about how we're going to work with someone. I think there's also another side of that conversation, which is a piece that I had in, in my interview with Jessica, which is there's also the the fact that we do want to celebrate people's differences, right? We want to acknowledge that everyone has a different component to their life and that they may have grown up differently, their backgrounds may be different, the things that they're dealing with may be different, and and accept that as part of who they are coming into any conversation that we're having with them. So I think there's two sides to that picture too, which is not judging people or not deciding you're going to sort of judge their work based off of what you're perceiving um, you're seeing when you're looking at them, but also understanding that you are going to celebrate what they bring that's different to the to the conversation, right? Which we oftentimes overlook that part of the, part of the diversity and inclusion conversation as well, right? Yeah, so let's let's pick through a couple of notes, and, and let me say that next week I just got a paper this morning that I haven't had time to finish, but it is a very high-end, peer-reviewed, published presentation from people at Cornell in the human resources, the wing of Cornell, um, Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and the University of Virginia, and I think it says that they can't find a correlation between diversity and inclusion practice and business results. And so, so I'll have, it's 50 You'll pages have long. That. I'll have, I'll yeah. have digested that by next week. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and maybe we can tackle the other side of this controversial area, which is. Exactly. Yeah. So for anybody real quickly who is interested in reading the article or maybe visiting what Jessica's talking about, uh, she is at the visible collective.com. Um, so we'll put that note on the HR Examiner um, and, uh, environment as well when we put out the notes for the radio show. But there is still a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Besides our own personal sort of um, things that we're dealing with, there is a lot of stuff going on in the tech space as well. Uh, Unit 4 um, appointing two well-known people from the HR technology industry, Thomas Otter, most of us probably know, um, who used to be a well-known analyst in the Gartner and the other spaces, as well as used to work at um, uh, previously with other large um, HR technology firms, has now been placed in charge of human capital management strategy over at Unit 4. Um, we also saw that um, just in June, so we didn't mention this last week, but I thought it was interesting that we've got both of these two new appointments. Unit 4, um, Mike Etling also appointed Andy, um, sorry, Andy Brock, Brockhoff, I'm not going to say his name correctly, um, who used to work at SAP and SAP Success Factors and also at Anaplan. Um, and has now come over to take over Unit 4's role in North America, which means that I would assume Mike Etling has big plans to really push Unit 4, a core HRMS, some financial elements, um, as well as um, other HR applications that go along with the core HRMS area out into the U.S. market, which they previously have not really done other than in a couple of education areas. Um, so this, I think, is interesting just to keep an eye on them, that's all. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, um, he is he is staffing up with XSAP people. Is yep. that a good idea? I mean, God, lo I love I love Thomas Otter. Thomas Otter may be the smartest person in the industry. Um, 
but 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 do you really build a new company out of SAP people? Well, Mike Etling's obviously got a lot of experience and background there, and SAP is um, has I think you know made the cross from being a European organization to also a U.S. based organization pretty effectively. And that sounds like what Mike Etling's wanting to do. We'll obviously get more if we, we get a chance to have a t- conversation with them. But uh, I don't know. I, I think the the do we want to be an SAP light? I, I'm hoping that's not the direction they're going. So. Okay. Okay. Well, so so the one that blew your mind was Culture Amp raising eighty-two million dollars um, <laughs> in, in a in a Series E investment round. And um, if you don't follow investment. Um, the letter, the 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 higher the letter number, the least li- the less likely you are to get funding. I think is is one way of thinking about it. Um, I'm sure you could also spin it as um, um, the I- the core idea is so good that investors have been willing to continue to invest in spite of the fact that profitability hasn't ar- uh, arrived yet. Uh, but but. $82 million bringing the valuation on a engagement and performance management company to a billion dollars. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of money, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm gobsmacked. I, I, yeah. um, 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 you know, you you gotta you gotta admit that Culture Amp has been sort of the little engine that could. Um, and, and, and they have kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And I have, I have tried and tried and tried and tried to see the value, um, and haven't been able to. But but um, here they go, a billion dollar valuation. I, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with Culture Amp, and, and I'm not completely, I think, as as much as you are, sort of in the in the sort of engagement platforms from platforms are, are making no impact. I think they do give a lot of impact, and they and they change. I think how organizations um, open up lines of communication with their employees. What I thought was interesting, and what made me pay more attention to Culture Amp, was their last year acquisition of Zugata. Zugata, it was a small performance management company that I had been watching for quite some time who was rethinking the idea of performance management as a team process, as a sort of cultural conversation, so it fit really well with the culture amp conversation, right? And um, and it sort of gets to a lot of things I think we've been talking about for a while, that there is some shift taking place inside of sort of the business world in and of itself, which which has to do a bit with, I think, about, you know, understanding what your employees are trying to achieve, understanding what's working and not working for them. Your employees are making the difference in so many cases as to whether or not your organization is sustainable, right? Um, And, you know, is it going to be more important or less important in the next 10 years going forward that we have very sophisticated tools to listen and to gain feedback from our employees I think that's really what these organizations are betting on by investing in us, right? Yeah, yeah, and and so so I would I would highly recommend that that anybody listening to this take a look at at my current article in HR Executive Magazine, which is about new ways of thinking about how to look at culture, right? And 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 it would be it would be my strong view that employee sentiment is such a fickle thing. That that 
basing decision making on employee sentiment is is not the right way to think about um, what it is that you want to measure inside of an organization. Um, and and so that's a it's a much longer conversation, but yeah. but but I don't think that what they measure is culture, right? I think that what they measure is mm, the consequences of the work, and um, that's a different that's a different question. And whether or not the employees like the work that they do, which is which is what you get in employee sentiment, is um, uh, a subject a subject of interesting debate. I think I think it's well worth an ongoing conversation, and and definitely I think a, a space where we're gonna we're gonna see more conversation. Um, I, my take is that Culture Amp will be at the forefront of the conversation. That the 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 this additional rounding, you know, funding rounding um, may you know signal some changes in their leadership. I don't know. That's that's some ongoing conversation to see what that's going to look like. But I think the bigger thing is is that. Um, you're going to see people take sides on some level about how important and what is the cultural conversation, which is where you're talking about. So, yeah, I think it'll it'll be very interesting. Um, maybe just as a last um, uh, element of um, our conversation, it's probably good to note uh, sort of along these lines that we're seeing a lot more investment, I would say sort of almost private equity investment going on. Uh, Time Clock Plus got private equity investment and HireVue got private investment as well. Is that anything that people should be noting, John? I mean, we, we, we see a lot of public investment oftentimes, you know, open um, sources of investment, but these are private equity firms that are investing and becoming partners. Is is that something people should be wary of when their companies get private so, equity investments? So, so I might botch this number, but I believe that the the total number of publicly held companies in the United States has fallen by 50% to something like 3,800 companies that you can invest in in the stock market. The rest of the companies are owned by private equity. Um, and um, it means that we don't have <clears throat> the transparency that the stock market brings to debt ratios and actual profitability of the organizations in the culture. And so so a big risk associated with private equity is we don't really understand what's going on in the economy any longer. Um, that said, that said, private equity is a more effective approach to steering the consequences of an investment, right? And so, so if you buy shares of stock or you're an institutional investor in a company, you get some input, and they and companies. Companies do bad when their institutional investors bail on them, but the but the decision making has to be that extreme. In a private equity company, private equity owned company, the private equity people are on the board and they make operational decisions. And so there's a tighter feedback loop between <clears throat> essentially the bank um, and the borrower. And the question is, is 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 private equity, you know, you know the, the word for private equity investments 10 or 12 or 15 years ago was junk bonds. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so the question here is, are we heading towards another junk bond crisis because of the degree to which private equity is invested in companies? Um, it's more likely like, like in the case of higher view, higher view, 
have you had a great first mover advantage in the marketplace, but they could never really get traction with their ideas? And a, a company like the Carlyle Group that has an eye towards a broader play um, um, is able to move more quickly to do mergers and acquisitions and pull things together. So, so it's a very mixed analysis about whether private equity is a good thing. But, but, but in the sort of short term, it, it, it's probably a really good thing. And in the long term, it may be a very scary thing. Yeah, and and from the buyer's perspective, I think you know these kind of announcements sometimes they may have no impact on on their decisions, but it there is a lot of conversation these days. I think when when companies are going through the buying cycle as to the longevity of some of these applications, because especially once you're in the cloud, there is the conversation about where is my data, um, and if a company either goes belly up or if it gets bought by someone else or you know our service changes, you know can we get out of those contracts? The idea was that it was supposed to be easier in the cloud. I don't know that our data is showing that these days, but we'll see if that, that actually becomes fruition. So those are part of the buyer's conversations as well these days. So Yeah, I think next week is going to be a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting conversation because um, um, I'll have finished my research. You'll have put your research to bed, I believe, and we'll start, we'll start to have stories to tell about what's in there. Exactly. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be a good week to to listen in in preparation for what you're planning on your own HR Tech um, fall conference schedules. So uh, which are coming up quite very quickly for all of us. <laughs> so good conversation, John. Yeah. Thanks. It was a great conversation today, Stacy. And uh, thanks for thanks for bringing up the hard topic. It was it was it was a good thing. Um, so you've been listening to. HR Tech Weekly, one step closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. It's been fun having you with us, um, and, and you can tell we certainly enjoyed ourselves. Uh, we'll see you back here next week, and thanks again, Stacey, for doing it. Thanks, John. Bye-bye Talk to you later. Bye-bye.